This week's episode is brought to you by FETC 2024. Buckle up for a week of education inspiration. FETC 24 is hurtling toward us, landing in sunny Orlando, Florida on January 23rd through the 26th. Get ready to immerse yourself in cutting-edge solutions, network with fellow educators from across the globe, and ignite your teaching with next-level inspiration. The event includes hands-on workshops, mind-blowing keynotes, and enough edtech to fill a rocket ship. And EdSurge podcast listeners can go to FETC.org and save 20% with the code EDSURGE. So grab your sunblock, pack your curiosity, and get ready to blast off to FETC. Visit FETC.org and use the code EDSURGE to save 20% today. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge, we're a nonprofit newsroom covering education at all levels. There's a question that's become a big one, maybe one of the toughest questions for anyone teaching or working in education these days. Should you ban smartphones in classes? I mean, let's face it, these devices can definitely be distracting, and they can definitely keep a student from listening to the teacher at the front of the room. But now that smartphones are such a key part of life outside of class, especially for high school and college students who often have responsibilities outside of school. The decision of whether or not to ban devices has gotten even more complicated. That point became even clearer to me when I read a book by a Georgetown professor called Being Present, Commanding Attention at Work and at Home by Managing Your Social Presence. It's by Janine Turner, a professor in the business school there, who also runs the Communication, Culture, and Technology program at Georgetown. I should say I went through that grad program many years ago, though I never met Turner back when I was a grad student. Janine Turner has been researching how technology shapes human relationships, and she's been doing that for decades. And many of the examples she uses stem from her experience teaching and from interviews that she's done with college students. And she's also done research on distance education. So I was excited to talk with her about how to teach in this hyper-connected moment. As regular listeners know, this theme of student attention and growing disengagement in classes is one that we've been digging into on the podcast for a while. In fact, I did a three-part series on this last year that you can check out if you haven't heard it already called Attention, Please. You can check out those episodes gathered on our podcast page at edsurge.com or find them on this feed. Even after the reporting that I had done on this, though, I found Turner's research findings surprising. Because as you'll hear, she argues that our internet-connected devices have changed the way people relate to others, even when those devices are put away. Before I started asking Turner questions, I felt like I should make sure to lay out some ground rules for how we would be present during our Zoom call. Should we put away our phones? Like, for, for you know, like, there's all this, like, silence or device kind of thing um, that um, it's not just for theaters anymore. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that our phones and our devices really make a difference in our interactions in pretty big ways, it sounds like. Right. I definitely think, I think what, that what really motivated me to understand and think about social presence really goes back to when um, I really started working with America Online and they had this instant messaging technology that would interrupt you if you're on your computer or maybe even interrupt you um, uh, in, other, in some other kind of context. And then as that kind of integrated within smartphones, all these different technologies that integrated within smartphones as smartphones started to diffuse, it became more and more of an issue. So I saw it first then, and it just has exacerbated since then. Okay, so for us to have this conversation, I have silenced, I put, I've stopped Slack, which has all these work messages for me. I, I have my phone, I am putting it way over here. It's like, I can't, I can't see it if it goes. So, but the interesting thing, it's like, you know, it's a word, we're, we'll be good etiquette and you and I will have a conversation. But the one thing I was really struck by in your research is that even if we do that, that somehow, like, even if we put these things away and be our best behavior, there's still something about the fact that these technologies are there that changes things for people's presence, right? Is that, can you say more about that? Oh, absolutely. So it's, 
so I, there's been some researchers that said, well, just turn your phone off and that solves it. But the problem is it doesn't solve it because we, because of this asynchronous nature of messaging where we can have emails piling up, we can have text that we need to respond to. Because of that, the capability of that means that we can, in many ways, never be fully present in a conversation because you're always thinking of a conversation you're supposed to be in or an ex expectation from someone else that is in the back of your mind, or you're talking to me about something that reminds me, oh, I forgot I was supposed to send an email back or get back with this other person. And so it really has complicated all of our communication. And so it's really not even an individual decision anymore because I might individually decide I want to talk with you right now, but maybe my boss, maybe a coworker, maybe a team member, maybe a family member needs to reach me and wants to be available to me, have me available to them at this time. And then I have to make decisions about that. So we really can't think of how we operate in a silo and that we can, ha we have so much control because so much of our environment is also creating expectations of for us as well. And because of that, you have this idea or this phrase that I thought was really interesting, which is like budgeted attention. So because of this, what you said, like, because the fact that even though our phones are off and we're being good, we're being really good. The The reality is that maybe, you know, you and I both have lives outside of this call. You have kids, I have kids. Like, you never know, like, what is going to happen. And so there's a little bit of me that it's like, if that phone did ring, I'd pick it up because if it's my kid, like, sick at school. So because of that reality that we live in, even if I've done everything I can, like, supposedly, then because of that, we actually are, our minds are differently wired to be present. And you call this budgeted attention. What is, what does that mean? Budgeted attention. So I love that kind of way of thinking about it because we think about budgets and how we manage our money. Where that's the budget, the budget metaphor comes from right. finance. Exactly. Yeah. And I think of attention as the same kind of resource. And I think if we think about our attention as a resource and then try to think about, okay, then where do we spend that attention? And is that attention being making the most of the relationships that we really care about? It really helps us to focus and understand about this resource of social presence and how we need to approach it. So I think it helps in two ways. One, um, I kind of think of budgeted presence when we have these technologies. We basically are in this default state most of the time. is where we have our phones available to us. Our, we might be on Zoom, but we're also looking to see if some other message comes in. So we have this sense that we can actually do this and be in all these conversations at the same time. But what we have to recognize is that we are actually allocating part of our attention to one thing and part to another. And our our brains really can't multitask like that. Um, all the research on multitasking says we really can't do it. Like 3% of the population is super taskers, and they're just talking about tasks, not something as complex as managing my relationship with you and my relationship with someone else. Um, at the same time that might be completely different. So, um, so that's why I think this budgeted metaphor helps us to think about not only is it hard to create priorities in our life around our social presence, but it also we have to be strategic and intentional if we're going to spend our social presence in the best way for our relationships. So, yeah, I mean, it feels like there's almost like this pie chart or almost like when you go to your computer, there's like the memory usage bar and like some of it is going to things that you don't even realize at any given moment. Like it's running in the background, some process that, um, and that is like the way our brains are now. And they didn't used to be right before we had the technology. Is that the idea? I don't know. I think we always, I mean, our, our mind can, we can work, our minds work four to five times faster than we can ever speak. So it's not like, you know, 20 years ago, or even at the time of Aristotle, they talk about logos, pathos, ethos to get people's attention. So it's not like we always had people's attention. So that's important to think about. I'm going to cut in with a quick reminder here. I had to look this up. Aristotle, in his writings on rhetoric, he identified what he called three means of persuasion. One is logos. That's the argument itself. Another is ethos, which is the character of the speaker. And the third is pathos the emotional state of the listener. Of course, her point is that getting people's attention is an age-old problem. I think what's different now is we actually think we can be in two conversations at the same time. So I actually think I can be on a Zoom with you, especially if my camera wasn't showing, and text 
and email other people and be able to keep track of all of those conversations. And we absolutely can't. But we do it. We do it. But something's lost. Is that something, yeah, exactly. Something's lost. So if it's a routine type message and I are, I've talked about this topic with you 15 times and I already know what you're going to say. And this is a routine message. I have time to run over and check my email about this quick. Oh, is a meeting at two or three? So there's a lot of like routine things that maybe I could do. So efficiency wise, I can probably do it. But qualitatively, relationship wise, should I be doing it? And even though you've talked about this topic with me 15 different times and maybe you've complained about it and I know exactly what's happening. If you think I'm not paying attention to you, that's going to have impact on that relationship. Um, if you're, if you're working with your kids and you're like, Oh my gosh, another complaining, complaining about their homework. Um, I'm just going to look at my email while they're complaining about this, but that has an impact on them. They see you're not paying attention to them. The research says that even having your phone up versus down has an impact on what people say, how much they decide to connect and talk because they don't think they're getting attention. So this, what's happening is we are devaluing listening and how important listening is to developing relationships. Does hmm. that make sense? No, it does. And I, so I guess this is the thing, you know, that, that really struck me because there has been this idea of just put the, just put the phone away, make the choice. And you're saying there's a little bit more going on in our norms and in our thoughts that, that is, is deeper. Oh, absolutely. Because for example, if I, I, I in many ways at a luxury because I'm a professor, I'm in my class, I turn my phone off. I don't have necessarily a team that I'm working on. I don't have a boss that's expecting a certain things because my number one job is doing this teaching, right? So in so many ways, academics have a little bit of flexibility that many business people don't have. So for example, in one annual uh, kind of like faculty handbook of a major bank, they had in the in the same... Um, the employee, employee handbook. Employee handbook, right? Yeah. They said, if you are in a meeting you need to be completely focused on that meeting and not be looking at your devices. But in the same handbook, it said, um, if your boss interacts or tries to engage with you, you need to respond within 15 minutes. So there's no way you can do both those things. And that's, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. That's the expectation. That's a, that's become a lot of work. Yes. Yeah, they just right? put it in yeah. writing, but that's the expectation that people have and organizations have. So this is a systemic problem and an organizational uh, that has to happen at the organizational level, at the family level, at the school level. I mean, you just mentioned, well, what if my kid's school calls and they're sick, right? 20 years ago, the school didn't expect you to be able to respond within like 45 minutes, 30 minutes. The, this kid's in my nursing, my, the nursing. The, the nurse's office. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. Right. There wasn't this expectation that this parent's going to respond and get over there and pick him up that quickly because you wouldn't be able to reach somebody that quickly. So it's every aspect of our life has this expectation of response, immediacy of response. In fact, I even think intimacy of relationships is often judged by how quickly will someone respond to my message. And you really can't be that um, immediate with that many people. And so that makes it really problematic. Okay, so I, 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 wanna, I wanted to start with this kind of bigger picture because I do think it's, you know, this is an important one to understand how things are just so different in just a few years. But I, I obviously, you know, I'm very interested in your experience and your research as it involves teaching, which, you know, you've been at Georgetown teaching for quite a while, right? How long? So I'm almost, it's like 27, 28 years. I know. There you go. I can't believe yeah. it. And so you've seen a lot of different you know, you've, you've been teaching during these different aspects of, of, you know, where technology stands. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted you to take us back to before smartphones were everywhere and before everyone had their laptops on Wi-Fi. And I'm, I, I've been around long enough to remember this moment too, but as a teacher for you, what was it like? What was it like back then when you walked into a classroom? Like when you first walked in a room to lecture, tell us what that was typically like. So um, I remember when you'd walk into a class and it was so loud and so much talking going on that you have to say, okay, settle down, settle down. It's time to start class. Never happens anymore. You walk in, everyone's on their computers, everyone's on their laptops, everyone's on their phones. So you have to get people engaged. And that, that may seem like a small thing, but it's a huge 
issue in terms of even starting a class. You've got this energy of people waiting for this event. And I, I, I do not pretend for a second that anyone was thinking of this as like some kind of big concert, like excited for a concert. But still, there's this energy around waiting for this class to start. Um, you know, your college class to start and having this like sidebar conversations, waiting for this to happen. And then the class starts and let's all get excited about this class. Obviously, I'm more excited than anyone else, for sure. I'm I'm not like uh, pretending that, wow, everyone was so excited about my class. However, walking into a class that's completely silent and you have to pull people away from all these other things that they're doing, talking to their family member, talking to a boyfriend, girlfriend. On their phone. uh, Trying to order shoes, trying to figure out um, what they're doing this weekend, trying to get a reservation for, trying to pull them away from all these other things and try to get and also sell them on the excitement of the day. I mean, that's just a 10-minute window that is transformed completely because of these devices in the classroom. No, and it's interesting because, uh, like I, like you said, it's not like you were ever this rock star, but but I do understand. Like, So, in other words, there is this – I feel like I can even find – and maybe I'll try to do it. Like, this, find this clip of, like, what you're talking about. Like, that that room hus- bustle and hustle and the people chat, chatting with other – getting to know other students who might sit next to them or asking or asking for a pencil or whatever it is. Like, interacting human to human in that space. And you're saying you just, you just don't – you used to see it and you don't now. It doesn't happen. And so let's just think about what that means on a K through 12 level and college level, right? So I'm talking about the college level, but the same thing is happening. I mean, many schools don't allow phones, so that's a different situation. But But a lot of high schools, yeah, they do. Right. So to the extent to which it's the same situation, what's happening is a lot of impromptu, casual, hey, what are you interested in? What have you been doing? What's going, are you going to the game this weekend? All of that impromptu relationship building conversation and practice in me saying to you, Jeff, oh, hey, Jeff, you know, we haven't ever met, but, you know, this is the third class we're in together. You know, what else? You know, I don't have practice being in those awkward initial beginning conversations, random conversations. I don't have practice doing that at all. And so I've stopped doing it. And so now I get to college and I've actually had uh, students say this. There's a two-week window at the beginning of college when you're at college when it's kind of okay to be like, hi, my name's Janine. I'm from here. Jeff, where are you from? But then you're not supposed to interrupt people and in a class and kind of like get someone off their phone and talk. So there's this... So two-week window. Like That's wow. what they would talk about. They, would, they threw it out, two weeks. So, so now... Imagine this, you're, you don't have practice from high school in these kind of conversations other than the people you're with or your online conversations. You come to college, brand new place, don't know anyone, but you have all these relationships with your high school friends, so you just keep talking to them. And you don't even know on your device, on, on your devices, group chat on, on or Facebook whatever. or what Instagram, whatever, Snapchat. And you don't even have to make new friends in person. But, and it's so hard to make new friends in person, and I don't even know how to do it. And in a classroom, everyone's quiet, and no one's interacting and engaging at the beginning. So unless the professor is creating these get-to-know-you activities in every class, which I don't think professors are used to doing, but they need to, we need to start thinking about how, how we do that, then you really aren't creating these opportunities for relationships, and we are not practiced in doing that. And then we haven't really talked about this at all, but this was all happening without COVID. So imagine now we have an entire year and sometimes more, and then we had mask wearing. And so it's even more so that people don't engage in this kind of like impromptu, casual, awkward conversations where you're trying to figure out what I know about another person. So getting to invitational, which is a deeper level, how how do we even do that? Does that make sense? It does. And so this is a, a – the cost of this convenience and being able to keep touch um, on our devices, the cost is actually the present moment of the, the world, the physical world. Yeah. The cost is the present moment of the physical world. The cost is the learning how to build relationships and have engaging conversations. Um, the cost is building those relationships and making those connections. Now, it's not that people don't know how to do that, because I think that as 
kind of this digital generation is very familiar with how to make connections over technology and um, certain emojis, certain texts, certain ways to re reply or when you reply, all these cues associated with that, that maybe a person that hasn't been in, is involved in that digital kind of conversation isn't even aware that they might be, you know, breaking some kind of norm, right? So it's, I'm not saying that people are not good at communicating now. I'm just saying it's changing where we're good at communicating and how we're communicating, but definitely getting to know new people in a physical presence, we are not as good at that. We're, we're not as good at developing those relationships in the same way. And we're, and a lot of that I think can be attributed to the lack of practice in being in a situation where you had no one to talk to or no way to figure out how to get, we don't even have to ask for directions anymore. So, I mean, just small little things have made an impact on how we were building relationships. Yeah. I, I noticed when I, if my maps or app is, or something, my phone's not up or, you know, up to the battery life anymore. And I, I need to ask for directions. The other thing is like, not only do we like not know it's awkward to go into the gas station and be like, can you tell me where something is? But people actually don't even know because we're all so used to mapping and having the phone tell us like, yeah. Um, so there's all these things that by not doing them, we lose the practice of. Yeah. It's almost like a social muscle. I definitely saw that after the pandemic, we, we didn't exercise those social muscles. And so now coming out of it and also with the added issue of the devices. And then I think this multitasking, multi-communicating kind of dynamic became even more problematic because there was this expectation that you were doing work and school and home all in the same environment. So now it became normalized that um, I'm with my family, but I'm also doing work because I had to do that. And now how do we go back to my home as a container for certain things and my work as a container for certain things? Those boundaries have kind of been broken. After the break, we hear a clip from a student sharing her perspective on what it feels like to be a student in class these days. And we talk about what educators can do to keep the attention of these distracted students. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by FETC 2024. Are you tired of lesson plans that look like yesterday's news? Are your students snoring through slide decks that are older than smartphones? Hold on, educators. There is a cure for the innovation blues. It's FETC 24. This jam-packed event is your one-stop shop for all things edtech. From AR adventures to AI-powered assessments. It's all in sunny Orlando, Florida, January 23rd through 26th. Dive into seven dynamic tracks from personalized learning to future-ready schools. Connect with industry leaders, discover game-changing solutions, and learn from the brightest minds in education. Imagine classrooms buzzing with excitement, students coding robots, and teachers ditching textbooks for VR tours of the Amazon rainforest. That's the power of FETC. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Go to FETC.org and use code EDSURGE for 20% off your registration. And join the education revolution at FETC 2024. FETC. Ignite your teaching. Transform your school. Inspire your students. Visit FETC.org and use code EDSURGE to save 20% today. Now back to the episode. Now, this is an, uh, an issue we've been exploring at Ed Surge and especially on this podcast. In fact, I went to a campus about a year ago, Texas State University, and I got to sit in on a lot of um, large lecture classes and talk to students and faculty about how this is like, what it looks like. And it's interesting, like there were, um, you know, I definitely saw examples and we, people who've heard the, the series know, but I wanted to play a clip from one of those students because I think it's relevant to your research. So give me a second. I'm going to, um, I'm going to put it on share. So give me a second here. Okay. So bear with me. I'm going to play this clip for us here. And it's a student, I believe it was a sophomore at Texas State University who was talking here. I should also add that in this clip, the student is talking about what class was like during pandemic shutdowns when all her classes were on Zoom. It was very interesting because like you said, like most people, like unless the professor makes it required to have your at least your screen on, um, it was black and I could just 
I feel like it's safe to assume that when it's like that, people are doing other things behind the screen. I myself was. I'd be watching videos. I'd be doing other things, kind of treating it almost like a podcast. Like I'm listening, but I'm doing other stuff. I would like take my dog on a walk and be in class technically, (laughs) but the professor wouldn't know because, you know, I'm uh, camera off muted and... Like what kind of videos did you watch? I would watch like cooking videos, I would watch anime, I would watch literally like full on TV shows, like that within that hour I would just be doing something else. Um, Not really like um, games or anything like that with the kid in front of you, but I still would just totally like divert my attention if I was watching like a video. Um, But if I was doing something like uh, walking my dog or like dishes I would listen in and I'm still kind of there in the lecture if that makes sense yeah okay so there is a zoom student I think the zoom university as a lot of people described their moment you know their experience during the pandemic which was you know over a year at a lot of places um so here's a student describing this how, how did you react to that I saw you head nod- head nodding a little bit Oh, I, I absolutely, because I did some research around that same time looking at the, I mean, that's, I'm not surprised at all. Okay. That's exactly what was going on. In fact, I know professors were all excited about this breakup, breakout room technology, but no one would get, I mean, you put people in breakout rooms and then they go do something else. And then they, one person would be in, in charge of coming up with some made up thing that they talked about. When they come back in, you say to the kids, to the students, okay, what what happened in your breakout room? And one person volunteered to make some make something up. So I think that that was so. I mean, horrifying, right? What I think is, uh, I mean, we were doing the best we could. We were in. A, I mean, I don't necessarily blame you know universities, academia, schools, K through twelve. I mean, we had like forty eight hours to try to figure out how do we deal with this pandemic situation, and then and meanwhile. I mean, we're in crisis mode and family members are getting sick. I mean, so we can't necessarily, I mean, throw all these academic institutions under the bus for this situation. However, what we have to recognize is that for a year, it wasn't just a couple of weeks, for a year, that norm developed of, and I love what she said, which is exactly what I say students think of, thought of the educational experience. They thought of it as a podcast, right? So then you spend a year of that, whether it's in your K through 12 situation or your university situation, then you come back in person, first masked, so no one could really understand what anyone else was saying, right? Which then establishes another norm where we don't really engage in the classroom. And so now coming back, it is hard to get engagement because students don't see the the classroom environment in the same way, especially a large lecture class, which requires a lot of um, self-discipline, a lot of motivation, a lot of focus on the part of a student to really stay engaged um, with what's going on in that class. This changed dramatically expectations around and kind of like what, wow, look what I can get, look what I can get by with. Right. So you wouldn't even think to uh, prior to the pandemic, you wouldn't have been in a large lecture class watching a show at the same time. Or if you did, you'd feel almost embarrassed or maybe you did. And but people behind you are seeing you and now you're kind of like a me labeled a specific type of person. Um, I think coming out of the pandemic, it's like everybody was doing that. And it's like, wow, I can do that and I can get by. And actually, I can still get an OK grade. So now is that what my classes are? And not just classes, when you think about social engagement on campus, we learn so much about how to engage on campus by the previous year and what they did. And well, like, for example, I'm in a two-year master's program. And so we, you very quickly don't have a, an entire year of students to provide the norm for the next year. So it's really important to think about how quickly you can lose um, norms, rituals, routines, um, community um, in, in ways that you didn't even understand what you had before. 
And I think we're seeing that not in educational, not just educational institutions. We've seen, we're seeing that in families. We're seeing that in um, organizations where they have this desperate need to get back to these water cooler conversations, which they never had anything to do with orchestrating. So now they don't know how to bring them back because we're in a different time where I don't need to go to the water cooler and just talk because I actually have a million people I can talk to that on my phone. And why do I need to leave my office to walk around? So it's very, um, I've got my water bottle here. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a, we really need to think of a huge reset. And I think also one other thing is we had these norms that we developed in organizations, in education, in that happened with a 48 hour crisis, like 48 to 72 hour crisis situation to respond to. And then we somehow, because it went on for so long, we actually thought, well, I guess we should just keep doing it that way because that's how we did it. And we had no strategic planning around those activities. We had no um, really thoughtful um, outcome-based um, decisions around those specific norms and routines and strategies we developed, but we continue to use them. So we really need to have a reset in all of these places. And I, that's why I kind of think of thinking about our social presence, thinking how we budget it, how we're going to use it in different places, what we're going to do about it is the conversation we need to be having in, in our relationships. No, one of the things that really struck me in your book is you mentioned that it used to be that we really privileged in person. Like there was this, you know, we that was the gold standard, right? And for a meeting, for being together and having, you know, anything. And online, I remember, you know, online education, when you first started getting this too, you probably remember like it was seen as like, oh God, like that'll be terrible because it's online. Like really we all need to be back in, like we in person is where is where learning can happen and relationships and people that's the, that's where we want to be. And then online is this like, well, if you absolutely can't get there, but you're saying something actually shifted during this pandemic lockdown period in people's view. Is that, that that's not necessarily as gold standard anymore. Oh, and I don't even think it was the pandemic to be honest, because I, I remember when I was getting my PhD at Ohio State, I was studying distance education and and people that would just join a class in an audio call, a horrible situation, bad connection. But if they cared about the class, if they were motivated, they really were interested, they often could do better in a class than someone that was in person because those people were maybe not motivated, didn't care about the class, whatever. So, so, so I, what I think it's important, motivation has always been important for a student right? That's always been important. What I think is important for us to recognize is somehow physical in-person allowed us to create an energy that um, in classrooms that is harder to create now because of this kind of, these kind of ideas that people have around technology. They almost put their digital technology in front of face-to-face. Face-to-face is background noise to my phone. I'm talking to you, but if my phone rings, I'm like, oh, I better look at that. I'm in, I'm in class, in face-to-face. My phone, my my text, I get something uh, on my laptop. Oh, I need to look and see what that is. So my my I kind of view this bubble around myself and my online presence is becoming, and the media see that in which I respond is more important than any place I am face-to-face. And so that creates a situation where that same student who was in a podcast during the pandemic, still has a podcast mentality when she comes into the classroom, even though we're in this physical in-person space. I think it was absolutely made problematic by the pandemic, but I think it was gradually happening over time uh, with the introduction of the of the smartphone. You know, we've talked about um, on on our podcast here in Ed Search. We've talked about kind of the how a lot of teachers at both K-12 and higher ed have, you know, we're kind of frustrated by all these changes. And and some, you mentioned too in your book, like some have even kind of left the profession early because it's just different. Like they're, they're feeling like, well, this isn't the same anymore. Is that fair to say? I think, I think absolutely. And a lot of professors retired. I mean, I, a lot of people talk and you still, I know it's not the same in the classroom. And I value, I, I think I study social presence. I think about it all the time. I, and I really value the in-person kind of engagement and dynamic you can create in a class. And I, and I see 
I, I absolutely see a dramatic change. Not everybody does because some people say, oh, no, I don't see it. I think it depends on how big your class is. It depends on what the topic is. You know, it, have, did people choose it or was it this required class? I mean, so there's a lot of variables in place. But I definitely have seen a change in the way people engage on college campuses um, post, um, post-pandemic, for sure, in the classroom. Okay, so you... Let's talk about solutions because a lot of this is setting up the the world and how it's changed in this you know pretty quick time and in, 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 if you think about it 10, 15 years. So now what? Let's say let's say you we do you know value human relationships. We want people to feel like they have a sense of belonging in their school or college. What what are some things that um, institutions and school and teachers can do? Let's talk about individual instructors first. Like. Is there anything is there anything you suggest for trying to, you know, kind of make sure you're connecting? I, I love that question. So really I focus a lot in the book and I actually do talk a lot about educational settings in each of the chapters on competitive and invitational space. So I think of competitive space is competitive presence is when I need to persuade you about something. So I'm not I, I kind of want to be in control of your attention. But I really need to think of why do you care about this topic? Why do you need to know about this topic? What does it matter to you? How can I make it completely relevant to you? So it's more like, how do I sell this? I know teachers don't want to think of themselves as salespeople. They are, they are salespeople, right? And, and there's this idea, well, students just need to know this and they need to know they need to know it. I think, I think it doesn't, uh, I don't think we can use that in the same way that maybe we could have years ago where people are like, oh, I just have to check out this box, right? So, um, you're either selling in the classroom or you're trying to figure out how do I create a space of dialogue? And that has to be intentional. So for example, I'm going to be my, my first class on Wednesday. I'll be teaching undergraduates and we're, that's my first class. And I'm really thinking about what am I going to do on Wednesday to create norms for dialogue in that class? And it, it's not something that I can create. I'm going to ask all the students, I want us to, I, what kind of class do you want to have over the course of the semester? Think about what your favorite class was. What was the dynamic in that class like? How did people talk in that class? How did you get to know other people in that class? What kind of things can we do in this class to make that happen? It's not going to be me imposing those norms. We have to create those norms together. And it seems like a very weird thing to do. Like why, why is that even part of a class? If you want to create an invitational space, and when I talk about invitational space, it has to be um, a, a space that's safe, people feel comfortable talking, people feel valued, that their opinion valued, and people feel free to in, engage and express, it has to be a collaborative conversation about how that's going to happen. And so that means that I'd like to even in my class designate this part of my, I'm going to spend 15 minutes on this lecture, and I, in my mind, am going to have to be thinking, Competitive presence. How am I going to, why do they need to know this? How am I going to sell this? What's the evidence that suggests that this really matters to this topic and to them and why they're in this class right now? How am I going to organize that? And then when I want to have dialogue, how am I going to fill, how can I facilitate a dialogue around this? How can I create questions? How do I maybe make it easier for people to talk? So for example, do I put everybody, and I'm, all educators are great at this, and I've learned so much from talking to other K-12 through teachers about what to do, but even just like these think-pair-share type things. Okay, I want you to think about this. Get in your groups or getting a pair up, and then you're going to share those ideas. That takes the pressure of raising my hand in front of a bunch of other people and saying something and maybe being wrong. And then if I don't create this environment of conversation, I might have two or three people talking all the time, or I might have a situation where people don't feel comfortable with each other, and then you can have bad behavior, like people audiotaping someone else in the classroom and then posting that somewhere, and then now no one's ever going to talk in that class. So it is so critical on that first day to create, um, to, to, to talk with the class and try to figure out how you're going to create that environment. And the smaller the class, the easier maybe it is to do it. Now, some people might be listening saying, oh, I teach this large lecture class of 200 people, and I don't know how I'm going to do that. You're right. You might. You're, that's not as much of an invitational space just by the nature of the numbers. But you definitely have to think about competitive presence. If you're going to be trying to sell your content for the next um, hour and 15 minutes or 45 minutes, 
Why do they need to know? What are you going to, what are you doing with your slides? What are you doing with video? What are your, what are you doing with examples and evidence that's going to engage that class to get them um, interested? I guess there's always been an aspect of selling it, especially for like an intro class or something. But it, you're saying you really have to think through what is your audience? What's going to connect with this audience? I absolutely believe that. Every every teacher, every presenter in a business situation, if you're doing a meeting, you're running a meeting, you have to if for for the time when you want people's attention on you and you're trying to persuade, you have to know that you're competing for the attention of that person with that phone. And that that phone is going to be continually um, buzzing throughout your conversation. And if people don't think that they need to be spending attention to you rather than whatever they're doing on their phone, or you keep saying the same thing over, or you haven't provided enough incentive as to why you should listen to me, then people are going to choose something else. The audience has more agency, more choice than they have ever had in the history of presentations now because of that device. They, every single moment they're choosing whether to pay attention to you or pay attention to that device. And because of that, you never have this kind of idea of a captive audience. You always, you're always competing. Wow. And it's interesting to me because there is this sense of like, I remember we've, we did a podcast episode many years ago before the pandemic of a, of award-winning lecturer who she was saying that like, she, you know, feels like there's like Ted talks. And so you've got to be as engaging as that, but it seems like things are even harder now perhaps because TikToks are these short little clips that people have on their phones that are just like, there's just so many things that are expectations of what engagement can be. I'm so glad you brought that up because there, a lot of people go to Ted talks and think that's how presentate all presentations have to be like Ted talks. That's impossible. If you think about um, the evidence you need to get over, go over the, the strategy, a long, long kind of conversation, an agenda, strategy session, whatever it is, everything can't be like a TED Talk, right? And, and we are not all professional like celebrity <laughs> that are in the situation that we even learn how to um, learn how to think about our topic that way. However, this expectation that my audience just needs to know this information and they just need to sit there and take it and this is really important and they're going to see it someday, that is never going to work anymore. So I think that I I actually don't think all presentations have to be like a TED Talk, but if I have a segment of maybe a, I have a framework that's really important for people to understand that's complex, I need to figure out how am I going to frame that in a way that helps audience helps my students know, see how you're going to be able to use this on a daily basis or this when you get into finance, when you get into marketing, this is what it's going to mean when you inter- interview or engage with a customer. Help me understand what is relevant. We don't need to have classes turn into TikToks or we don't have need classes turn into TED Talks, but we can't, we can't have the assumption that the student just needs to take this medicine and they will take it because they have too many um, they have too many other distractions available to them, and so it's important for us to think about how we. It's almost like a menu of uh, how we're going to approach um, our content. It's ex- it sounds exhausting. It is exhausting. That's why people are like, "Oh, I'm done with this." I mean, I loved being able just to walk in the classroom. Everybody thought I was so smart just because I was, and and they just wrote down everything I said, and then I walked out. I mean, that, I mean that never happened to me, but I think it happened to some people, right? And so I think, uh, but but I think, I mean, since the time of Aristotle, really, I talked about that. He talked about logos, pathos, ethos. So I think a lot of times we thought we had this great attention, and people really thought we were so interesting, but they didn't have anywhere else to go, and they were just stuck there. So maybe they were, uh, you know, doodling or making a list or doing something else. Um, and, but they and, and they were just paying attention because they had to. But now they don't. In their mind, they don't have to. And over the to your point and to that student's point with the pandemic they were able to get away with a lot of partial attention and still somehow get through this class. So they have learned that this is a a bad lesson to learn, but they have this learning or this kind of sense that now school is, I just have to get through it. I can, I, I, I treat it like this podcast. 
I mean, even the fact that, you know, people would record the presentation, not be there, and then fast forward, you know, listen to it on the fast forward and feel like they got it, right? So we, in many ways, maybe it's going to be a really a great reawakening for education about a better kind of sense of how can I position what I'm talking about that's going to make this audience understand why they need to know it or why it matters to them. And if you think back to the teachers that you liked over your lifetime, they did that already. You never left that class thinking, why do I need to know that? Or even if it was kind of an obscure topic, wow, the way they talk about it was just so interesting. That was a great class. So it's not like if we don't go back and look at our favorite teachers, they weren't doing that. It's just that now more of us are expected to do it. And there's an ex expectation on the part of the audience that you're going to do that. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Now, th one of the things that struck me is that the stakes are actually high. It's not just that the satisfaction of being a teacher here, because we're talking about, you know, whether someone is getting the education that they came to college to get and that is going to prepare them for work and life. So I want, one of the things that you mentioned that we all think we can do this multitasking, right? Like I, I've, I will confess right now, I probably shouldn't, but like, I, you know, I've been in meetings in my organization where I, I am, I think, you know, I'm, I'm in a big meeting. I'm my camera, maybe if it's, it's on, maybe it's off. And like, I'm, I'm there, I get credit for being there. And I think to myself, I can still do this, knock out this email I got to send today. I'm, I am so cool. Like I am doing both things at the same time, but you're saying, and I think that if my name comes up at the meeting or if something comes up that's relevant, I'm going to put that away and then I'm going to be there. But you, you point out that like what people end up choosing, it, it may, it may be, I guess one of the things that I just want to, I'm really curious about this idea that people may be less challenged because the parts they're tuning out are self-selected in ways they might not realize, right? There's some a bias here that you found in your research. Yeah, absolutely. They are self-selecting what matters and what doesn't matter when it comes to conversations with relationships, when it comes with conversations with family, when it comes with conversa conversations with work, with school, right? So there's this, there's this very audience-centered um a per, per, person-centered approach in that I'm going to decide how I'm going to allocate my attention over the course of this hour, over the course of my day. And prior to this smartphone, part of this digital device, I was kind of stuck in your class. I could be thinking about something else, but I was stuck there. So, okay, I might as well just, oh, I, wow, I learned more than I thought I was going to learn, right? So I, I, so it's, it's it's very much like you're talking about this self-selection. It's like you don't even know what you're missing because you don't know what you didn't get. Um, we I did this yeah. uh, I did this study of um, with this colleague at Georgetown. We were we um, they were they had to be listening to this NPR story while you're also managing this inbox activity. And what we found was when we tested them later on the NPR story, if if a question about the NPR story a specific part of that story happened at the same time this text came in that you had to respond to, you missed the question, right? So the challenge is, uh, but but if it didn't, then you probably got questions right, right? So so what's, what's challenging is we don't really know what we don't know is important, and but we're already self-selecting out of that. Uh, and maybe this is the right analogy, but I'm thinking about, remember when you went to Blockbuster? I remember picking a movie on a Friday night. Many people yeah. don't remember that, but you go to Blockbuster and you think you're going in for one movie, but they don't have that movie or maybe they have it. But then you see these other movies they never even thought about getting. And then you get those. And you're like, wow, what a great movie, right? That's not happening anymore, right? Because you're, you don't even get exposed to this information that you didn't ever, even really know that you needed. And I think in a classroom where we used to have, we have an hour and we, as a professor who, is, who, who already an hour is not enough time for us to say everything we want to say, right? But for the student, it's like an hour. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to sit through this, right? And, right. and so we really have to think about how, in, in our minds, it's like, oh, this is so important. The students are going to get it. They're going to get as excited as I am. No, no, no. I have to think about in the, in the trajectory of my class, 
what is it about this hour that connects to my overall uh, class that is going to help the student figure out what they need? And not only do I have to know that, I have to articulate that so the student understands that. So these ideas of learning goals and learning outcomes and connection, we've always had to do that in education. We just have to be more clear about articulating that and selling that within the context of our classes to our students. And I think it's going to make us better educators. It's a lot of work. It's a lot more that we used to maybe have to do to make explicit. But I think it's going to make us better educators, better classrooms, and better students. Oh, I, 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 like, I, like, I, like I like that, that bright side. side. <laughs> I did. I, 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 I was struck, though, you say that, you know, we are in this era of polarization and divisiveness uh, out there in in the world and um, and culture wars around education, frankly. And one of the things you mentioned is that one of the things people may bias just, you know, maybe without even knowing it is the tough stuff, like a topic that is uncomfortable or, or just an interaction with a student they may not have anything in common with. And in the past, they might've had to, to, to get through that, to like, to, to engage with it before the devices. And now you say things are different. What I think is so um, sad, and I think about this a lot, is that I think the university and the classroom really is a space for learning. And what learning means is learning is hard. And I might have access to information that makes me uncomfortable or makes me feel awkward, but here is, should be a safe space where I can better understand where another person is, is coming from. We talk a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, and we think it's so easy to put those three words together. If you value diversity and you value inclusion, you have to value conflict. You have to value because if I have a diverse opinion, but I feel included to share it, that means that you who have a different opinion are not going to be happy with that opinion that I shared. And you have to feel included to share your opinion. So that means diversity and inclusion requires conflict. It requires creating a safe space so that we can learn. Otherwise, all we have are diverse environments where no one speaks and no one feels included. And that is a tragedy. And if that happens in our universities, if that happens in our K-12 through schools, if that help happens in our educational environments that are supposed to be spaces for learning, then we have failed. And that's what we have to work to. How do we get, how can we create these invitational spaces in our, in our schools, in our educational environments, in our classrooms? One option that an educator has is to demand phones be left at the door. And we see this, and you know, I, I'm curious about your view. I'm sure a lot of people are figuring I'd ask this first question. Like, should, what do you think? What's your advice? Should should teachers ban devices or put them in a pouch? Or there's all these solutions that are out yeah. there, right? So I, yeah, so what's interesting is, um, I mean, musicians, you go to a concert, the phone has to go in a pouch because they don't like the distraction or celebrities don't like the distraction. So I, it's not that... As you know, communication is an engaging, dynamic process. And when I am engaged and excited, but I am not getting that feedback from you, it makes it hard for me to be engaged and exciting, right? So I totally get this idea of entitled presence. That's what you called it, entitled presence, meaning like as the as the leader, you get to just demand that, that device is entitled, that's a bad word, but it, it basically is saying my, my, my time is more important than whatever time you have on your technology device, which, and sometimes it is, right? In fact, I've had many students say, I loved that this, I loved that the, the, that I couldn't have my technology in that class. I've had students say, I wish the university would turn off the Wi-Fi for two hours a day so that I wouldn't have this expectation from other people that I would be, be responsive. So, so there's a value around entitled presence, but I think it requires kind of a mixture of entitled and invitational, right? So I think we have to say, I mean, I feel completely uncomfortable ever teaching executive audience and saying, everybody put your phones away, because who am I to do that when people think coming in that they might get a chance to uh, hear a text and you all have people listen to text and you all have people that said, oh, yeah, I know you're in that meeting, but just really quick response. Right. So so what's challenging is we have to think about how we set these ground rules. Now, in a class, you have an opportunity like you don't have in a school. If you said, OK, no, no phones in the in the school you are taking that on for the whole institution. If, if I'm doing that in a class, I put that in my syllabus, no phones in my class. But I feel like as a university professor and I teach leadership communication, for me to say you are not allowed to have phones, that 
how am I helping them make decisions about phone use if I take that agency away? I, what I would like to do in my classes is have conversations about what does that mean? And I'm going to do that on Wednesday when I start my class. What does it mean to um, be committed to a space and to people and the relationships? And how can we create norms in our class around that? So I, I, um, what I'd like to do is just to spend more time talking about these devices and the impact on our families, on our classrooms, on our organizations. And I think if we start making some explicit conversations around it, it'll be easier for us to then go back and say, well, oh, what, what are our ideas around this now? As opposed to letting it just seep in. And I'm mad that you're on your phone, but I don't say anything about it. And we don't figure out a way to go forward. Does that make sense? We just have to start having conversations about what we want and what our expectations are and what that means. Yeah. So it sounds like you don't personally favor just the total ban approach in most classes, but because that just ignores the issue or maybe it solves, it it sort of fake solves it for one hour, but doesn't address the bigger issues. I think it fake solves it for one hour. And then also because the world does not operate like that. So, for example, you have, if there's a family member, there's this, there's this expectation for immediacy that has never, ever been a challenge or a distraction to someone. When I was in school, I never had to worry about, I need to be available in case this, my boss texts me about changing my work hours today because I'm trying to work three jobs just to pay for my school, right? I don't have to worry about my family member has, um, you know, is getting a chemotherapy treatment, but we don't know what time the timing and I need to make sure that I'm going to be able to be there to pick them up after this class is over. So I need to know if they're going to have some problems with their Uber, right? So because of this device, it's given us agency and access to other parts of our lives that we didn't have before. So now what you're saying with entitled presence is you're cutting people off from all of those things. I've had people say that can work if I get a warning that I'm not going to be able. So if I'm going to go into the CIA, for example, that I did some research um, there, their Starbucks is the friendliest Starbucks um, in the world because no one has their, everyone has their phone has to be in their car. Right. So there's nobody. I love it. Okay. If you become a secret agent, then you can have a better uh, presence. So, okay. but, but I just think that, um, but I think that we actually have to allow people to plan for this lack of access, which we, so I think in a, in a class, maybe you can, you can say, Hey, this is my, it's going to be in my class. So you're, you're going to know for the semester, if you don't want to take this class, don't take it. And that might be a reason someone doesn't take the class. Oh, I can't go. I, I can't not take my, so, but that's, but that's something we uniquely have in a class that you don't have in workplaces. You don't have that in organizations. You actually don't even have that in families. Families might for an hour be able to no phones at the table. Right. But then th- within the context of COVID people were working, people had to figure out. So then that even changed those norms. Right. So I really think it means we have to start having these conversations around social presence. What do we want our social presence to look like? And um, how do we create those um, conversations? Does that make sense? It does. And you, you know, you referenced, there was some research that happened a few years ago around having like breaks of technology and a whole campus having an experiment with like a no technology day. Um, It sounds kind of quaint, but I remember this was going on a bit and you did some research around that and what happened when people actually did that on your campus and had a, a break. So we did, we had, we had breaks in some specific classes that were, were do- dedicated to that. And then we had exercises where people spent two or three days and they tried to monitor their classroom use, but some universities would have a complete break. So, so students would talk about how great that was and it was a great experiment, but it's still, we are, uh, and that, that's even 10 years ago and we're still racing into a more engaged, challenging situation. I mean, we have, I have international students in my classes that they like to have the phone so that they can help translate to stay better on top of what's going on in the class so they can do quickly search. The challenge now we obviously have is AI in the classroom where people are using AI to answer questions and try to figure out what's going on. We have students with dis- disabilities, certain learning disabilities that they need, um, they, they need access to, um, their computer, whether it's whether for typing or they need it for, um, assistive technology. some of their sure. assistive technology. So, 
So now, is that right? Okay, no technology in the classroom except for this one person who has accommodations and everybody look over and see that person who has accommodations and uh, don't anybody pay attention to the fact that they're on their phone all the time. So, I mean, that's not right. I mean, my actually, my son's hearing impaired. He always needed a, some type of an accommodation. He hated that people could see that he was wearing this FM system and that he had to turn it on and turn it off. And so, and that's not right. So I, we just... We have to really think it's not an individual decision. It's a community decision. We have to think about how we can talk about it. Well, thank you so much for, for your time today. Thank you so much. This is a fun conversation. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we bring you conversations like this one. If you don't already, please follow the Ed Surge Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we hope you'll tell a friend about the show so we can continue to grow. This episode was written and produced by me, I'm Jeff Young. You can find me on X at JR Young or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing this episode by Rebecca Koenig and music by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>